This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Ward Stone, Ph.D., wildlife pathologist for the state's Department of Environmental Conservation for more than 40 years. He has fought his way back from a series of strokes that almost killed him. I can't walk, but I can think, he says. At almost 82, the passion he's had since his boyhood for wildlife and for discovery is unquelled. He says he has an unfinished job to fight for the environment. He recalls helping Mohawks discover what was polluting their water. He recalls working to identify the West Nile virus in New York. And he recalls predicting the sort of pandemic that we're suffering from now. There's a lot of things I was proud of. I, I kind of lived being a wildlife pathologist. My treatment of rabies was pretty good, I thought. Uh, we had a rabies episode, and, and I kind of worked around the clock on going out and, and uh, dealing with rabid animals around the countryside. And kept, I think, it down pretty good, setting technicians out. Uh, it was a hands-on kind of an operation with uh, rabies, which is back around uh, 92, 93, 94, and rabies is still around. I always had a lot to do with uh, viruses, and of course, rabies is caused by a virus, canine distemper, and the West Nile, of course, is something I'm proud of, although I think that they have not followed up on it. Uh, I was very concerned as to what the West Nile not only did to people, which was which was terrible, uh, killing some older people, mostly 70 or older, uh, but also it killed horses. And still to this day, we don't know what it is doing to other kinds of birds. And I was reading the other day that some people down, some scientists down in uh, Pennsylvania thought that it had a lot to do with the, with the low uh, populations of uh, rough grouse, partridge, that it was killing the chicks. And uh, being that I can't walk, but I can think, I had been thinking about it. I thought that the changes we had made with climate change and getting wetter torrential downpours in the spring was causing hypothermia in the chicks. But these are all things that ought to be checked and looked at. And what stimulated me today was all that money which was uh, gotten to do all kinds of things, but nobody is looking at the viruses and uh, in wildlife. And uh, that, that hasn't come out as a, an important thing to do. And of course, the important thing is to stop the human morbidity and mortality from the viruses that has escaped and gone out here. But if you uh, listen to my radio show back on WAMC, I predicted that the virus was going to come around like this. And it's not like I don't have any ground for dealing with the viruses because I do, having discovered the, uh, the virus going on in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the birds that were dying at the time back in 19... Well, I know it was 2000. I think that was around 2002, 2003, 2004. Not too long before I got sick. I'm now uh, 81, almost 82. 
but uh, starting back around 2009, I began bumping into walls and having small strokes. And then I had some big strokes, uh, which resulted in me being brought back to life by electric paddles applied to start my heart again. And uh, and I resulted I was on the respirator for a long time. And finally, I got out of the hospitals and went to a nursing home. Now I'm in a uh, an independent living place for retired people. And um, I actually have gotten better over time. I, I couldn't talk for a couple of years, carry on a conversation or make sentences, which was hard to take because at Syracuse undergraduate, I was Delta Sigma Rho, which is kind of like being, well, it's certainly an honorary, a national honorary for debating. And I was known as a pretty good speaker. But here I was not able to speak, not able to really get my sentences out, but able to uh, unable to lay in bed and think and review chemistry and courses. So I knew my memory was working good. And um, I'm still a scientist. I still want to do things, and I want to make it a, a better, healthier Earth. And I've been watching uh, what society's been doing for a long time and making it a much more unhealthy uh, world and nature and threatening all kinds of species and populations going down. And we need to turn that around tremendously. And um, I think the Conservation Department... I was in the old conservation department, and I was uh, I became a charter member of the uh, Department of Environmental Conservation. And I think that the department needs to be overhauled. There need to be hearings on it. It needs to be made relevant with the with the kind of changes that have occurred in the environment. And for example, you look at the school over in Rensselaer, not all that far away virtually within sight of the governor's office on the other side of the river from Albany. Mm-hmm. And here's a school where there are 1,100 kids approximately that ordinarily would be going to school, and you can smell the pollutants from the dumps that's been permitted to be around them going into the school. And we all know that a lot of these pollutants do not show their impact on people, and they're being studied. They're not really being studied as far as I know at all. Uh, if they're being studied, there may not be tumors and so on produced for decades. And by that time, it's too late for those kids. And you wonder why in the world you would ever issue a permit that had the predictable uh, pollutants coming from the construction debris and you knew that they were going to go into the school. I studied a lot of those kinds of dumps. I don't know I ever, how I ever studied so many different things, but I kept awfully busy going <laughs> various did. places and working seven days a week. Yeah. And they need to overhaul the Department of Environmental Conservation. I see they put a news release out about dropping some endangered species. But there's going to be more endangered species all the time. There recently were some science articles that showed there were billions less birds in North America than there used to be 50 years ago uh, by, I think, Rothenberger. 
at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, who uh, studied the movement of birds by studying weather radar, was one of the major ways. And they, they produced some articles in Nature and Science. Well, actually, his were in Science. And uh, they documented the downfall of these populations. Well, you've got all these populations going down. So what are they doing? They're working on dropping endangered species while we're getting more on a worldwide basis. We should be doing the opposite. We should be studying the birds and adding to the list and protecting them. And the warblers, which are beautiful forest birds, which leave early in the fall, um, going south, and they, they need forested areas and so on. So I, I've been studying, looking into a place called the uh, Bluestone Forest outside of Kingston, part of the Catskills. And uh, there's a, a concrete plant that wants to go in right by that, by that park and use some of the bluestone that actually comes from the park to make concrete. Concrete's a mixture of uh, rubber stone, and that's a very nice uh, stone, stone that is strong and provides traction. So when it makes concrete, it's good for bridges and things like that. But if you want to protect those lands, uh, parks, and then you've got to do it. And you wonder why D.C. is not doing that. And we need hearings, um, probably Senate Assembly. We may need more than that. Uh, the, the parents, they're probably over there. Although that's a poor community. Uh, they ought to sue DEC and take them into quarters under uh, sworn testimony and have them show under with their scientific testimony in court as to how they ever... Uh, allowed such a place to uh, develop and um, contaminate the kids in the area. And we well, need to I can overhaul the whole thing. I can see your passion and your intellect are as strong as ever. I'd love to hear if you could just kind of go back in time. You say you're 81, almost 82. What motivated you in the first place as a kid to become not just a Shadow wildlife pathologist? Yeah, Back just tell where us a little I came about from Spencertown in Columbia yeah. County. When uh-huh. I was a little boy, I went to a two-room school, well, two-classroom school. It actually had a an auditorium because it was a an old place where they uh, trained uh, Protestant ministers as kids. They taught Greek and stuff like that, but they had outdoor toilets, and it eventually became a public school. And I went there, and I had two wonderful teachers. And uh, the library used to come in the, a big box every year uh, from the state library system. And uh, the teachers, Mrs. Weaver and Mrs. Buddha, uh, were the teachers. Each one taught four grades. Each one had a room. That's all there were. There was no gym teacher, uh, no art teacher. It was those two ladies. They had everything to do administratively, watch the kids deal with all the problems that came along. And those ladies were absolutely wonderful. And Mrs. Buddha, uh, she said to me one day, here comes the box of books that I ordered from the library, and I want you to know that I ordered those books a lot for you, primarily for you, I think she said. 
<laughs> and I get a, a lot of books on Indians and animals and uh, nature, the things that you seem to be interested in. And I read all those books, but I didn't read very well. And then when I learned to read, it was fantastic. Uh, the books that she had got, one of them was Catlett. Uh, he was an artist and he traveled across the country and he drew Indian nations. And I'm, I'm part Indian. So that interested me. I'm mostly English and Scotch and Irish and so on. But I've got some uh, old uh, inroads of uh, DNA from uh, national, from American Indians uh, in my bloodline. I knew that when I was a kid. And that made me wonder, where the hell did they go? Uh, it's called the Punset Valley here in Spencertown, Punset Creek. But there are no Indians. There were trails that old people told me were made by Native Americans walking. They didn't use the term Native Americans at the time. But Indians walking along the stream, up this rocky area, up, up uh, toward a cliff. And so many uh, Native Americans walked on so they made a trail. And that is still there today. So I would look at all those kinds of things. And I was so interested in the trout and the stream and the wildlife. It was just a wonderful place, and I must say that the, the people that I work for, uh, like the farmers, they were great. Uh, they they taught me a lot about life and about uh, living things, cattle, the animals in the field, uh, and they were so nice to me. I mean, sometimes I thought they gave me jobs working on the farm, getting hay or so on, just because they liked, they couldn't really afford to hire me, but they did. Hmm. And it, it just built up my interest in that. So when I went to Syracuse, oh, I was in the Navy for five years. I was a corpsman in the U.S. Navy. And I went into that because, well, my father died as a result of World War II. He wasn't killed by bullets, although he, he was in the field artillery. And he took a long, he was in a long battle in Manila in the field artillery boom, and he came back. He had tuberculosis, and he never got better from it, oh, and gosh. he died. And that made me think that I've got my part to do, um, serving this country, or I'm not sure how much I thought about that at 17, serving my country. I did think about that, uh, but it was, you know, excitement, wondering what the military would be like. And where where were you... S- where were you stationed with the Navy? Well, I started off in Maryland, and uh, they sent me to the National Naval Medical School, uh, not to become an MD, but uh, to learn a lot, so, that, so I would be ready to deal with with that, uh, with emergencies and combat and that sort of thing. And then I went down to Key West, Florida. I put in for uh, New Hampshire, uh, but they sent me to Key West, Florida instead. And then they sent me over to uh, the Far East, and I went to Korea, and I went to uh, the Philippines, and I went to uh, Taiwan, and I went down to uh, Vietnam. So I was around a lot of places. I was on a couple of ships, uh, USS Breckenridge, a troop plans- transport, and USNS. Daniel Sullivan, uh, Sultan, S-U-L-T-A-N. And uh, 
I did that until I was about uh, 21, and uh, then I was I had been accepted to Syracuse University, where I went, and they said, "Well, what do you major in?" I would think that you would be good to major in maybe history or English, and then go to law school and go into politics. Was what some of my advisors told me at Syracuse. Said, what do you want to do? I said, well, what do we got on animals here? And they said, zoology, but you won't make any money in zoology. So I said, well, zoology is what I want to learn about. So that's what I'll do. But I already had uh, learned a lot in the U.S. Navy. And I I went to Syracuse, and I, I majored in zoology. And I got a bachelor's in that. And uh, then I got a master's in zoology, which was primarily dealing with parasitology. And then eventually I got a doctorate of science from SUNY. And what was your doctorate? What is your doctorate in? Uh, that was in uh, wildlife pathology, the kind of disease stuff, studying things like West Nile viruses. And, you know, wildlife, the things that I did in wildlife pathology. Well, I was particularly interested as you were going through some of your many accomplishments in two things. You mentioned your work on the Indian Reservation, and now that I've heard that you have some of that in your heritage, could you just tell us a little more about that? Well, I think that they really didn't really know that initially. Uh, a Indian woman by the name of Gudji Cook, still alive, spelled K-A-T- S-I, but pronounced Gudgy, not mm-hmm. Katsy. And she was a midwife up there, and she came down to see me one day, all the way from up in Messina down to Del Mar. And she um, she looked like a, a woman that would, would have been around in 1491, before the discovery of uh, Columbus. Kind of a nut brown, dark flashing eyes, strength, kind of uh, red, brownish skin, and very intelligent-looking woman. And, of course, she said to me, uh, you write like an Indian. You write about owls and things like that, and about the uh, threats to them, and about turtles. Those are a big species with my people, uh, the Mohawks. And she said, I think that aquasousing is being badly polluted, uh, by uh, Reynolds Aluminum and by uh, a Canadian plant called Domtar and by General Motors also on the American side and uh, by uh, Alcoa, a little further upriver. And so I, I, she said, would you come up and take a look around? So I was very interested in Indians and always had been. But the fact is it didn't matter who it was, they said they were being badly polluted, so I was going to go take a look at it. And they told me how the fish would have sores on them, how the mink were gone, and how the river had changed because of pollution. So I went up there and I found that the chiefs were very interested, not just the midwives, but the chiefs and the clan mothers, very interested in the threat, especially to their kids and their way of life. And I I went to some meetings and with other people from the state 
And I listened to them, and they would say things like, well, we're very sympathetic with you, but you don't give us anything scientifically that we can hang our hat on, that we can really say that there is a real problem and know what it is. So I said, not to worry. I know what the problems are, and I can get the data. And so I went out there, and I did that. And that was working with the Mohawks, and boy, they had some really smart smart people and have some smart people now. Um, what, the, what the chiefs did was they said, we will give you our young, smartest people to be interns and help you. And so we got some, uh, it took almost no money to do that. And we went out there and we began sampling, and sure enough, PCBs were everywhere. And in their food chain, their fish were not good to eat. They also had some other problems with uh, with some elements of polynuclear aromatics coming from pollution over onto their lands, and they were being badly put upon, and nothing was being done. And so I went up there and uh, with a Mohawk intern. Uh, the guy's name was uh, Ken Jock. And we went ashore on, on one day. We came up there, and I quickly sampled the, the uh, ditches that came out of uh, Reynolds Metals and went into the river, and they were loaded with PCBs. They were, like, easy to find. But the bureaucracy wasn't finding them. They were being polluted badly, both by air and by water. Well, this led to some battles, and... Uh, but the data was really good. So I testified, wrote some articles, and it turned out that I was right about what was there and about the pollution. And it has made a big difference, but that kind of stuff needs to keep going on. And in one lifetime, when you do things like that, that kind of a study, and the other ones that I that I did, the next thing you know, you have gone from a 29-year-old to a 70-some-odd-year-old. <laughs> well, another thing that you mentioned that I thought would be fascinating to talk about, especially at the time of coronavirus, is you had mentioned um, you had early on predicted that this sort of a pandemic might occur, That the, looking at the relationship with birds. So that's still around. But I think also in records of my shows on WAMC's program that I had, uh, right. with Joe and with Susan Arbetter. I think I but remember just, doing it with Susan Arbetter. Just and tell us a little... about how viruses were going to be mutated and that they could go around the world and they could actually kill millions of people. And that that was happening uh, with wildlife. Now, at this moment, I'm not sure where that virus came from. I've heard about... Uh, and here in, in my retirement uh, apartment, I have heard about the possibility of uh, fruit bats. I've also heard about the pangolin. Um, but I'm pretty sure it has come from wildlife and uh, over there. But the world has changed because the world has never had more people in it than it does now. And uh, not counting the losses we've had to the coronavirus uh, overnight, which is substantial, but uh, the world population is very dense, and it moves very rapidly. 
So when some new disease pops up, with the movement of airplanes and so on that we have, uh, we can move a disease very quickly in the military and uh, introduce a new disease. And, of course, not just for people, but for, for wildlife. And like the West Nile virus, it kills people, but it also kills things like horses, and it also kills wildlife. And unfortunately, I got old old too fast, and I didn't have time to follow the West Nile up as well as I would have liked. And it doesn't look like anybody in New York did it. We don't yeah. even care about West Nile. And we need to change this country a lot, the way we do things. We have got leaders of our country that have dealt with greed and not thinking about what is going on and don't know about how you have to have good ecology for have healthy wildlife and have healthy people. And we have got an earth that is showing us that is not healthy for a lot of living things, including us. And it's time that we really changed and started cleaning up some of those things because climate change is not going to be good for humans. And it's even worse for a lot of wildlife species that aren't even going to be around anymore because they're going to be extinct because of the changes. And we've got many species going down. I admire your lifetime commitment to this. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little about, you mentioned in passing how you'd had this series of strokes and finally had a a big one, and yet here you are being as articulate as ever. Could you just talk about... uh, I took my son out in the woods up in Fern, Mm -hmm. and uh, we were hunting, but really I was showing him, he was about 14 at the time, his first hunting license, I was showing about uh, safety of guns, and we and I was showing about rough grouse. We didn't actually shoot any of them, but we went back a couple of times, and it was more looking at nature and looking at wildlife. My son Jeremiah, and all of a sudden I didn't have any legs, so I was back there. So I, I showed him. Well, I I told him I was a little alarmed by the fact that I couldn't walk. I didn't have any strength in my legs. And I had, I showed him, I said, well, in the military, I knew how to do this kind of a crawl because he, although he was a big, strong boy, he wasn't strong enough to haul his 230-pound father out of the woods. And that was a little embarrassing. And there was snow, so I was able to kind of um, move my elbows into position and slide across the snow and make my way out of the woods. And then my strength in my legs came back. And that was uh, 2009, uh, about a year before I actually uh, left. And I wasn't feeling right in 2008. I noticed I was doing things like walking into the wall at Del Mar. I couldn't keep myself centered in the hall. So I, I went to some doctors, and, and I had some other problems like diabetes coming on, diabetes uh, um, two. Um, so I had diabetes and I had the strokes. Well, anyway, then about a year later, I had a real stroke. I went to go out of the house and I couldn't come down off the back porch uh, because the legs were gone, but I lost a lot more stability. So I went down to Albany Med and sure enough, 
eventually they found that I had a stroke. Um, and I had all the things that happened with that. Um, not being able to you know, get out of bed, not being able to use my legs, uh, not being able to talk, not being able to swallow. So I lived on IVs and uh, gastric garbage, tube down the throat, uh, to put food and water down uh, for about a year and a half. So I spent some time at Albany Med, and they did a good job of keeping me alive. And I was, of course, in my 70s. And uh, they thought that if I went to over to Massachusetts to uh, Parkview Hospital in Springfield, uh, they would be able to uh, carry on a rehab. And I went over there. And that's uh, a girl told me during the night, she said, Dr. Stone, you die about every night. She's about a 19-year-old young woman. And I thought that was pretty interesting. I found she was right. And that, uh, they did come in and they had to uh, shut my heart in order to keep me going. Oh so they put, they cut a tracheotomy in me and they put me on a respirator. So when you're on a respirator and a tracheotomy, talking and moving around is not something you do a lot of. And I spent quite a long time I don't really know how long, but it was a long time, I think over a year. And sometimes they would put me on the respirator at night because that's when my oxygen would go down and my my heart would ultimately stop. And I spent time at that hospital, and then they sent me to a nursing home uh, called uh, Great Barrington Rehabilitation and Nursing, or Nursing and Rehabilitation, I guess it is. And it was wonderful there. They had really very nice personnel, and they had a lot of rehabilitation, um, good nutrition, diet, dietitian, uh, activities. They were That was really a good nursing home. And they helped me a lot. And I decided, by golly, I will make a comeback. So I began speaking a little bit. Well, giving a speech, which used to be so easy for me, was not easy at all because I couldn't really speak loudly and I couldn't uh, throw my voice even far across the room. And uh, so I kept practicing that. And I found that I could take pretty good care of myself, even though I couldn't walk. Uh, and I got so that I could, well, first at the nursing home, uh, they had me at a table where they had somebody watch the people eat, make sure that they could swallow their food um, on a daily basis, and then over time I got to eat, although a lot of choking, uh, and then when I came here to Troy, uh, that has gotten so I can do that very easily now, and uh they gave me a, a, an area where uh, I can speak to uh, other people who are, um, well, they don't use the term patients, but they're a place of uh, rehabilitation and uh, independent living. Uh, but I, I give a, a, a course in which I talk about the environment and so on, and that's really good for me because it got me talking again. 
and able to use my voice so that I could uh, talk about it. And I've gotten to the point where I can once again talk and do something about environmental issues. And I find that although my 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 brain is very old, uh, it's still got good memory about what I did and about my knowledge all the way back to uh, college at Syracuse or the uh, training in the Navy. And I still can remember and come up with that information. So it's fantastic what the human brain can do. And, of course, I've got a lot of, a lot of fight in me. So uh, an unfinished uh, job when you're dealing with the environment because they're always doing bad things to the environment and a need for somebody who knows what's going on to fight for it. And I'm the guy that can do just that. And, of course, I like to think about uh, my dad. I just looked at a letter that he wrote a few days before he died. And he was very dedicated to this country, and he was very dedicated to doing good works. But uh, they didn't have a treatment for TB at the time, and they were cutting out much of his left lung because it was badly infected with TB. And he was complaining a little bit about what was going on. They had removed a couple of his ribs, and he died. And I remember when he died, and I remember his funeral. I remember telling people that my dad was a war hero and how quickly that disappeared. But it never disappeared from my mind. And, uh, and, the, and the letter that I've got here, uh, my father wrote, he was writing to his friend in Chatham, New York, by the name of uh, Harold Ludington. And he was talking about how his kid was going to go to college and and how he was getting money from the government for me and for college. And it turned out some 15, 20 years to be very little money to go to Central University with, but it was helpful, and it was nice knowing that my father wanted that done. And he was a guy also interested in the turtles and interested in wildlife and fish in general. But I was always crazy about them, and I loved working on the farms over in Columbia County, working on haying, seeing all the wildlife out there, going on the streams. So even though I was poor and didn't have any money, it was a wonderful place to grow up, and I had a wonderful time out there in nature. And that has that has been really important to me as a kid, and it's just as important now. I've been watching the bird feeders, and I watch what's happening to the bird populations here. I watch the crows fly over, and I know that the birds are down. I enjoy the birds. For example, the last couple of days, the goldfinches are in transition. The males, for example, are going toward that beautiful gold and black pattern that they have. Mm-hmm. And they were not in that in the latter part of the winter, but they're heading for that very rapidly. So I'm I'm enjoying watching the birds by noting that the populations are down. I'm able to remember the birds a lot when I was a kid and the populations on the grass and know that they put all kinds of chemicals on the grass. I used to complain about so much chemicals on the, on the, air, on the grass, but I was so busy diagnosing the birds and writing up those reports and getting the peer-reviewed articles published and testifying down in uh, 
different agencies in, in Washington, EPA, Parks and Recreation, and so on, uh, that I never got the time that I, I needed. Um, but we, that, and I did see, I won an award, and I think it was 98 or 99, from the uh, museum in Glens Falls. And they asked me five things that need to be done, and one of the things right away that could be done by the public, and one was cut down on the use of pesticides on turf grass. And now we've got Monsanto's uh, herbicide being um, talked about as a carcinogen, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so we're beginning to hear from attorneys now on television uh, because they can make a lot of money suing Monsanto and getting some settlement money. But, boy, I, it was a pretty lonely place talking about lawn pesticides. And some bunch of America uses heavy doses of lawn pesticides. And we should. It was bad. It was unhealthy. And it knocked the living heck out of our bird populations. The modern lawns have a lot to do with the downfall of the robins. We, we thought about robins coming back with spring. So in late March and April, you would see the lawns hop, the robins hopping around on your lawn. Yep, the sign of spring. Grabbing uh, night crawlers. And, and sometimes it was quite comical because you had a big night crawler and the robin would have to tilt its body back to try to pull it out of the ground. And not infrequently, some of those big night crawlers got away from the robins and went down their burrow, which is a good thing, or in the soil. But there was enough food around on the lawns and worms that they could feed their babies in the nest, and they would make mud nests, which you would see not everywhere but on, on every lawn. They were easy for kids to find them and see the robin egg blue eggs. They're not so easy to find anymore. Their populations are way down compared to what they were when I was a kid or even a young man. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is very evident that they have taken quite a pounding. And, of course, I used to see as a boy, I remember going out, and the grass was about as tall as I was at the hayfields. And I'd, I'd see the monarch butterflies come down in the land. And I'd walk up a foot or two away from my a monarch butterfly and think they're kind of like a flying trial flower, except they're more alive, more responsive to uh, things than a flower would be. Uh, they're a living thing. And now we're reading about their population continue to decline, and Monsanto and their herbicides and their war on milkweed, uh, by the way, on weeds, I got an award from the uh, Mohawk Nation, and it is a turtle, and, uh, and it was done by a Mohawk artist. And I said to the, the artist, what's what's that bird up there in the head? Well, that's you. Uh, that represents an eagle. Somebody's oh. flying around there and looking at the oh. earth. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that great? But I just love that closing image. You are the eagle, the ever-watchful eagle, flying around the head of the turtle. Well, part of it was, up in the lakes, are strawberries, strawberry plants. 
and I recognized, you know, the strawberries are very evident. Uh, that that hangs in this room here. And I asked him about that. Well, strawberries are sacred to the the Mohawks. When somebody dies, they will say things like, uh, say it's a lady that dies. She's eating strawberries now. Not that she died, but she's eating strawberries. When they have a mm. wedding, the wedding cake is cornmeal with strawberries. So it's kind of a, a pink, uh, pink cornmeal. Very tasty cake for Mohawk weddings. And so, uh, I asked about the vegetation because there were strawberries up in the front legs. I said, what's this vegetation in the back legs? And he said, well, we don't know, but we know that it's good. And, of course, I come from a society where kill the dandelion, kill the Indian paintbrush. Those things don't belong here. Kill the chicory. Spray it. And you can go to Cooperative Extension to get little pamphlets at the time to find out what to spray and what to buy to, to get rid of these terrible pests. Well, the Indian point of view still in the uh, in this century was there's nothing wrong with them. We just don't know what's good. But in the case of the milkweed, of course, we knew that was good to eat. So I, I had to ask what is wrong with the milkweed plant. And they told me, well, it makes little brown spots in your lawn because it's a big plant. It shades down the area, and the grass doesn't grow as densely. But they were safer. This is me now. They were safer places for the wildlife. They were safer places to have your your kids play. Safer places for your pets to go. And they were much more interesting places to play in because during World War II, when they weren't doing so much of this, I'd say almost doing none. It was very interesting looking at the plant diversity and the diversity of insects. And I noticed that there were lots and lots of insects of all kinds that were around when I was a kid. They're not out there now. We have killed off so many of them by applying the pesticides. And that is the food that a lot of these bird species need, especially in the springtime. They need insects earthworms, things like on the lawns, because they they need a lot of protein for their newly hatched babies to grow. And in my opinion, it is not there. We have sickened the heck out of the wildlife. And as we make the world less suitable for wildlife, in my opinion, we make it unsuitable for ourselves.